This morning, I want to challenge you to um, follow along with us as we uh, are in a study that is found in Romans chapter 8. We're going to go with uh, the section of verses we're using today, Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. And uh, we'll be referencing some of the things talked about earlier there. And the question that I want to drop in your lap today is, do you believe that God is for you? Do you believe that God is for you? In the midst of all of the crisis situations that have been happening around us, and all of us have uh, not been in the same boat, right? Some uh, are employed all through this, some were unemployed, but we're all in the same storm. We're not in the same boat, but we're in the same storm. And uh, it has brought, is shaken to the foundations, I think, uh, everything that wasn't stable and solid about our faith and our walk with Christ. And certainly the question may have arisen, uh, and, and I've heard it uh, often throughout my pastorate ministry when people go through difficult times, is God really for me? What's going on? Why am I going through these things if God is really on my side? And that's one of the questions that... We tend to ask when we go through difficult seasons. So let's follow along and see what Paul has to say about that out of Romans chapter 8. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? If it is God who justifies, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, or pandemic. I'm sorry, I just threw that last one in, all right? Or sword, as it is written, for you, your sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angel, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. I'm asking God that you would open our hearts to bring clarity in these moments, but also God comfort strength and encouragement. I'm praying, God, that as uh, we are getting ready to reopen the campus here, that whatever needs to be dealt with inside of us, that you would deal with it. And as we come together, we would not do so fearfully, but encouraged and ready to embrace the mission that you've set before us. Father, even as uh, for those who may feel they need more time, that we would still feel the calling to engage in every way in the mission that you've set before us. Our personal growth and development, the discipleship of those that are around us, beginning in our own homes, God, with our children, our family, our spouses, our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers. 
that we have an opportunity to share our faith and share the good news and to be persuaded that you are going to help us overcome every obstacle that the enemy has placed in our way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Do you believe that God is for you? Do you believe that God is on your side? Now, what you believe about God affects the way you're going to respond to God. And in uncertain times, like we are in right now, and certainly this pandemic across the world, uh, it affects the decision-making, things that are going on in our lives. When we are concerned about where God is, and if He's really on our side, we, we can become fearful. We can react and respond fearfully. We can respond, as we have seen across our nation and across the world, in acts of self-preservation, all for me, emptying shelves and, and thinking only about what's going on in my life and, and in my personal situation. We can act out of anger. We can be upset because things uh, are, aren't there that we want or need, or people don't come that we think should be there, or respond in particular ways that we would like to respond. We are agitated by the circumstances going on, the fact that we are uh, isolated and uh, nothing is, is available for us to go out and, and experience, and so it brings about this frustration, this anger. We can react in bitterness. We can be bitter about it. Uh, looking at our neighbor who stayed employed while we lost our job and, and other things might have happened. And all of these things point back to our perspective and our view of who God is. And, and I believe, though, when we are asking that question, and Paul talks about it here, that we are asking the wrong question. When we ask the question, whose side is God on anyway? We're really asking the wrong question, and Paul points that out in this passage, in the verses before, and also in this section that we're reading right now. In this text, Paul destroys every argument that begins with, God is punishing me because. Paul tears down every one of those arguments, and he does so, so eloquently, and with these few words, he says in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. This is the God we serve. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. And Paul begins this by asking the question, what shall we say to these things? And And he goes through in the verses before a litany of things that God has done for us, that God has prepared for us, that just left him awestruck, if you will. And the question was, what shall we do about these things? And this is not a question that we can uh, find an answer for the world and, and that the world is calling out to us to answer and say, you know, why is God letting this virus uh, go around the world? And why is this thing unchecked? And if there is a God, what's going on? It's not the question here that, that we're to answer as a church for the world. Because Paul talks about it before and uh, answers the question immediately after, right? Because he says, uh, what shall we say to these things? That all of the things that God has done and all the things that God has accomplished on our behalf. And he answers that question, if God is for us, who can be against us? He answers that question with a question that is actually the answer. What shall we say to these things. 
There are some truths that we discover in Scripture that kind of leave us almost speechless. And that was the case in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. Paul was left speechless by his understanding of what God had accomplished through Christ Jesus. All these things work for your good, he said. God sees to it because he foreknew you. We were doing, we're doing a study, if you haven't had a chance to catch up with us on Wednesday nights, out of Jeremiah, and we talked about how the, the, the word came to Jeremiah, and God begins it by saying, before, yeah. Yeah. because God wanted Jeremiah to know there was a before, before I created you, before I formed you in the womb, I already designed you and had a plan for you and had a purpose for you. God foreknew you. God predestined you to glory in Christ. God called you when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. God justified you freely by His grace and faith alone. And God sanctifying you little by little until the day of His coming when it will all be consummated with a body, uh, a new body, a Christ's glorious resurrection body. Romans chapter 8 moves to a grand climax for us of assurance of salvation and sanctification. No matter what the circumstances are, we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. Is there anything, he asks in this passage, that can defeat God's purpose? Anything. Can anything separate us from the love of God? Paul looks over the, the full range of, of life and gives a resounding no. Nothing, nothing, no, nothing can separate you from the love of God. The last verses in, in Romans chapter 8 are a song of triumph uh, for the believer. Christ will carry us through all, uh, everything, every situation, all this life can hold through every tribulation, through every distress, through every persecution, through every famine, through every bit of nakedness and poverty, through every bit of peril and the sword. He will carry us through a pandemic. God will carry us through. From the beginning to the end of salvation, it is of God. And Paul was struck by this, that there's nothing that we can do of our human behavior to merit God's favor, but it is of God all the work that has been accomplished. And as Jeremiah learned, it was before I formed you, God had a plan. Neither can we save ourselves nor keep ourselves. The sovereign God is capable of keeping us, and He alone saves and keeps us. And so Paul, his, his, his key, the keynote verse in this passage, Paul says, as he's struck by all of the wonder of what God has accomplished through Christ Jesus, he says, now... I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. That language, I am persuaded, is the perfect tense in, that, in, in, in the original language. It means exactly what it means. I am 
confident, I am persuaded. There is no place for argument. There's no room for doubt. There's no way that I am, am, am looking at this uh, in any different way. I have seen what has been accomplished from, from God's half, from God's part for us through Christ Jesus, and I am thoroughly persuaded. There's no room for doubt. The Apostle Paul has come through a, a process of persuasion. He's reached that conclusion. He settled that conviction. And I'm asking you this morning, is that your evaluation of life? Can you say that with confidence? I want to invite you to say it with me this morning. Wherever you are located, I want to invite you to say these three words with me. I am persuaded. Let's say it together. I am persuaded. I am persuaded. I am persuaded. One more time. I am persuaded with conviction. Can we say it? When we say that, we dispense with that question the enemy tries to plant as a seed inside of our mind that is God really for you. It's a question that began in the garden in, in Genesis when, when he began to try to cast doubt on God's goodness. And he said to Eve, you know, surely God has not, um, you know, would not withhold this from you. He knows that it's good. And, and in the day that you eat of it, you will know good from evil and, and you will be like him. And that's why he's trying to hold it back from you. He does not want you to have this. And it is, it is, uh, it's, it's depicts the depravity of humanity that we could walk into a forest of trees and God says they all belong to you. But one of them in the forest of thousands, I preserve for me, and we want that one. The enemy would convince us that we want that one. We want to build our treehouse in that one, not the litany of, of trees around that God has given and provided. And the enemy had success in casting doubt because Eve was not persuaded. Adam was not yet persuaded. Even though he had an encounter with God and walked with God and had an intimate relationship with God that no, no other has really known in the sense of the real presence of God, walking, literally God himself walking with him in the cool of the garden, had an, a relationship that no man has really ever known. And yet he was not persuaded. But Paul says, I am persuaded. I've seen what's been accomplished for me. Christians are in constant warfare. This pandemic has been a, a worldwide crisis. It's got our attention. But we need to recognize one of the things of being a disciple of Jesus Christ is to recognize that we are always in warfare. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us about the armor that we need to get up and put on every single day because we are going to battle. We're going to battle in our minds, so there's a helmet of salvation. The enemy is trying to shoot darts at us. There's a, there's a shield of faith to kind of prevent those kinds of attacks, a breastplate of righteousness. We need to put that on. Our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, carrying the word, the sword of the Spirit. David said, I want that in my heart, God, so that I might not sin against you. 
I don't, I don't only just want to carry it around so people think that, you know, I'm a holy person and I do good things and I intellectually read this word and think, well, oh, that's pretty good. That's interesting. But I want to plant this inside and let it do a work in me so that I become a doer of the word, as James said, and not just a hearer only. We're constantly at war. There's never any downtime in, our, in, in, that, in the spiritual warfare. God gave a picture of what he wants for us in, in kingdom relationship by watching when he brought Israel out of Egypt and sent them to what he called the promised land. And he said, when you go there and when you keep me first, I will put you at rest. You will be at rest. That word rest is a consistent word that goes through in terms of our relationship. We can be at rest and still be at war. We're constantly at war, but we, we recognize that these, these battles that are going on are not with flesh and blood, uh, but they're against principalities, powers, spiritual wickedness in high places. We don't really do that warfare, uh, you know, except that on our knees and asking God to intervene and, and help. And he gives us a sense of peace when we ride through the waves of life. The big crisis situations that come our way, the great storms that come our way. Several years ago, Michelle and I were on vacation, and, and we were in um, one, of the, one of the Hawaiian islands, and we had gone on a little snorkeling trip, you know, and this was a, a big, big island, and we had gone to the top a couple of days earlier of, of the mountaintop. They call it the, the Little Grand Canyon, and we went to the height of that mountain. I have no idea how many feet high that was. But I was struck by the fact that the, the couple of days later, we're out heading on a snorkeling trip to the north part of that, that island. And as the waves were rising up, the island would disappear. These were, you know, 10-foot swells that were rising up, or 11-foot. And the, the, it seemed as if the island was gone. As, as this great wave rose up, and we have these situations in our life where trials and crises uh, come and they rise up and they get bigger than God. It's why we're called in the Psalms to magnify the Lord, to remember how big He really is and how small our problems are. But when the waves would calm down and settle down, you'd see that great island and that great mountain top that was there. It was only perspective. It wasn't a reality. It was only from being down in the boat and in the midst of that swell and those, those high waters and in the storms. It's only perspective. It's not reality. Paul said, I've, I've seen a lot of crisis and difficulties and challenges and things in my life. But I'm persuaded yes, yes, <laughs> that he is for me. Amen. Paul points out that God never takes a break either. His resources are available to us 24-7. Nothing and no one can defeat the eternal purpose that God has for our lives. We are empowered and encircled by the Holy Spirit. And we are more than conquerors. There is nothing that can separate you from God but you. You are the only one that can separate you. Your will to disconnect, to ignore, to disobey, to seek your own path, you can separate you from God. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 20 through 22, the apostle points out, 
For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome and less last state they become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to his own vomit and the sow after washing herself, returns to the wallow in the mire. Here Paul gives us a vivid, vivid picture of a life once lived for Christ that is now choosing to live without God. One that has let the doubts of life and all of the perspective of the storm and things capture their attention and and give way to what their faith and hope was planted in Christ. And begin to make decisions to turn away, to deconvert, to find another pathway. And Paul points out, this is like the dog returning to his own vomit. This is like a pig returning to wallow in the mire. In recent days, there's been a lot of discussion about what is essential. Essential workers, essential things that we should be doing. Governments and mayors and leaders have made decisions for us in many cases about what is essential. Some cases we have made decisions about what is most essential and what is most important. Doctors have made decisions about what is essential. But the question comes to us, what if, as a church of Jesus Christ, what if a life that is saved from the virus by essential doctors and essential nurses is lost for eternity. There's nothing more essential than the mission of Jesus Christ for our world. What if I gained another 5, 10, 15, 20 years, but I spend eternity separated from God? What really is essential? What is most important? A life that is surrendered to God through Jesus Christ is lived differently. We don't put all our eggs in this life basket. We recognize that the shelves are empty and it doesn't cause for self-preservation because we don't live just for this world. We recognize that eternity is out there. The small, small section, my wife and I have been talking in recent days, we often Uh, discuss this, how quickly time has passed. She was telling me just this morning as we were sitting together before we came to church that the mantle is one of her favorite sections of the house because it has pictures of our kids and a picture that something that her and I um, picked up years ago on a visit to uh, San Francisco, inexpensive, little picture, but it, it casts a lot, it brings a lot of memories back. And as we were both sitting there looking at that, I said, you know, it, that, that stuff seems like yesterday. It was, in some cases, you know, as, as much as 30, 40 years ago. And, and this, this stuff on this mantle, it just seems like it happened yesterday. Time 
flies by so quickly. Why do we want to, to give everything we have to that small section of life and the eternity aspect of it, not think about it or give anything to it? What does God consider essential in the times in which you and I live? And Paul outlines it for us here. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? We open this by saying, we ask the question during difficult times, whose side is God on anyway? When we ask that question, even outside of pandemic, if, if there's a divorce and everybody rallies around one spouse over another, who is God for, you know? Uh, why is this happening? Or we lose a job, someone else doesn't, or any kind of crisis situation. Maybe a member of our family becomes sick and, and someone else that we consider not as worthy or living a life not uh, as upright. The enemy might come in and say, look, God's favoring this person over you. It's the wrong question to ask. The question isn't like... Um, is God for us? He settled that. He's for you. He loves you. That question is settled. Paul said, I'm persuaded. Yes, the question is, whose side are you on? Yes. Whose side are you on? Are you on God's side? I go back often to these, the Last Supper picture in my mind of all of the disciples around the table with Jesus. We've seen depictions of what that may have looked like. But what, what strikes me is that when Jesus calls out that one of you is going to betray me, that just kind of everywhere across the table, they all begin to say, Lord, is it me? They, they begin to question, am I really on God's side? I've watched you, Jesus. You're on my side. But just in saying somebody is going to betray you, I'm afraid of the person in the mirror. I could be that. Am I that person? Is that me? Am I the one that's going to betray you? Is it me? Is it me? Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? It's an honest kind of intimate moment that we need to have right now where we do some self-examination and say, God, I'm, I, I've asked the wrong question. I've asked the question, are you on my side? I, I really want to know, because you know me better than I know me, am I on your side? I want to be persuaded, as Paul was, of your goodness, and that question has already been answered. You are on my side. You do love me. You do care about me. You did call me to this moment. And any kind of suffering and difficulty and challenge never brings that into question. I want to be there, God, where I've settled that question. But I do have a question for you. Am I on your side? Do I really belong to you wholeheartedly? Have I given all of myself. I'm going to invite our worship team to come. Have we really surrendered everything? Throughout my life, there have been various points where I've recognized as God has been working through me and what and that word we used earlier, sanctification, which is an ongoing work of grace in our lives where God is reflecting back to us things that 
he's working on things we need to work on, things we need to surrender to him. And there have been things that have popped up where God has said, you didn't give me all of this. And uh, sometimes there's light struggles like, God, I, you know, I really, I don't know if I'm ready to just surrender that yet. Early on in my life, uh, you know, when I was a lot younger, it was my dating life. I had some uh, stories of, of early situations where they, they didn't go well in, in dating. And, and I remember getting challenged by God and him saying, Do you this, give this to me. It belongs to me. I remember the first uh, young lady I dated after that, that uh, she really had a passion for Jesus. And we were getting ready to go. I had asked her. She said yes. I thought that was all there was to it. You know, this is great. We're going to get to go out for dinner. I'm going to get to know this person better. We got in the car, and she brought her Bible, and she <laughs> opened her Bible up, and she said, can we read and pray together? And I thought, wow, somebody who's passionate about Jesus, who loves Jesus, this is awesome. God had a plan for my dating life that was different from my plan. And he wanted me to surrender that to him. Yeah. Earlier than that, there was struggles with uh, finances and, and money. And I had always, uh, we grew up in a situation where there were some challenges in our home financially. And so early on, I learned to tuck some money back in my wallet and hang on to it. You know, and I was always going to have a, this mad money kind of thing. God says, does that really belong to me? You know? And uh, there was a place that I said, Lord, it, it, I haven't really surrendered that. I want to give it to you. God showed me how to surrender that aspect of my life and become generous in terms of my giving. And all throughout my life, God has challenged me. He's making us more like him and ridding us of that terrible, awful nature of sin that's so destructive in our hearts and lives with getting revenge for somebody who mistreated you, you know? God has said, does that really belong to me? Do you want to try to do that or do you want to give that to me? Yes, God, I want you to have everything. I want you to own me completely for I am persuaded you're for me and God, I want me to be for you. I want to be your number one voice your number one fan, your number one disciple who loves you and has given everything that I can have and, and seemingly own to you and say it belongs to you. And as we acquired things as a couple, got our first home, we said, God, this, this doesn't belong to us. It belongs to you. I've said it before. We taught our children to live differently in our house. We we told them there are places that you can't carry food, you can't uh, do certain things, because we were telling them early on, this house doesn't belong to us, it's God's house. And one day, God's gonna have us move from here, and we're gonna give it to someone else. In our first home that was built from the ground up, we got there when they had done the framing, and we wrote scriptures in different sections. We wrote passages of scripture on the door frame out of Deuteronomy chapter 11 and uh, throughout the house, different kinds of things, because we wanted them to know early on 
this belongs to God. One day somebody might be tearing that house down, <laughs> trying to reclaim the wood, and they're just reading scriptures, and maybe they'll come to know Jesus Christ as a result of knowing that Jesus owned that house at one point. It belonged to him. It helped us to open up our doors to everybody who needed help, to welcome them into our lives. I remember a particular situation in one of our homes in a place called Anthem, Arizona, where we had invited uh, people in our neighborhood to come over, and it's in Phoenix, and we had snow there. You know, we had these guys bring snow, so we're going to have hot chocolate snow, and it was uh, an outreach, a ministry to people, just to, just to love them. We weren't trying to put a hook in them and say, you got to come next Sunday. We just were saying, hey, we love you. We care about you. And uh, we were expecting, at most, 200 people. There were f- over 500 people that showed up at this thing. And uh, they were in my house. They were all over the place, you know. And uh, I, was, I remember walking to my house to pick up some more food. And, and like several families were coming down from the upstairs. I'm like, wow, okay. That's amazing. Self-tours, you know, were going on. And, and I was like, man, God, I trust you. Everything we have belongs to you. If anybody needs it or wants it, they can have it. It's certainly not hidden, right? Uh, they've been in and out of the closets. They've been all over the place. But we love you, and we love these people. They are yours, and this is what your kingdom is about. And so this is their house, too. Where are we with God when we are honest and saying, do I really belong completely to you, God? Am I really for you because I'm persuaded that you're for me?